This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with certified caregiving consultant and certified senior advisor, Elizabeth Miller. Elizabeth's personal experience caring for her aging parents and her brother with developmental disabilities inspired her to create Happy Healthy Caregiver in 2015. Through consulting services, public speaking, resources, and an online community, Elizabeth helps family caregivers integrate caregiving with their busy lives. She's also the host of the award-winning Happy Healthy Caregiver podcast on the Whole Care Network, and she facilitates support groups for family caregivers. Elizabeth Miller joins me today from just outside Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast. Thanks, Marianne, for having me. I'd like to just start out with maybe a bit of a definition. What exactly do we mean when we say caregiver? What, what defines someone as a caregiver? Well, I like to kind of put us in two different kinds of caregiving camps, first of all. Like there are professional caregivers who are paid to care as their career. And then there are the other types of caregivers, which I call family caregivers to make that distinction. Oftentimes, family caregivers are unpaid. They are doing lots of invisible labor, things like maybe they're calling their parent for a medication reminder, taking them to appointments, researching resources and medications and senior housing options, advocating for their loved ones, and also, you know, providing companionship. And sometimes it's personal hands-on care, such as toileting and feeding and bathing and all of these things. So it can look different for every situation. And I think sometimes, you know, we think of at-home caregivers, people who are have their loved one living with them, but there are other types of caregivers too. Like You can still be a family caregiver and you're caring for someone who is living close by and maybe aging in place or in a senior living community, or they could be living states and even countries away and you're still providing some kind of care services for this person. I think just for the purposes of our conversation, we're going to be talking about family caregivers and not so much paid caregivers. Family caregiving can often be somewhat circumstantial. You know, there's often, there's no one else available. The cost of hiring someone is prohibitive or, or maybe the family member feels that they really are the best person to take on the role. What are some of the things that maybe you counsel people to consider, you know, when they're deciding whether they should take on the role of a caregiver, if, if they even have the choice? I think. There, it can feel like there's not a choice, right? In many cases, these people cared for us. Sometimes we are caring for people who maybe did not provide great care for us at some point. And the cost of can be something to consider. So when I'm coaching a client, we're usually talking about their specific situation because everybody's situation is different. You know, are they working full time? Are they raising kids at home? Is, does this require a potential move for one person or the other? What are the concerns of their older adult or the person that they're providing care for that make them think that, you know, there's a need for a caregiving situation? So it's very situational. I do think there's a choice. I think sometimes, though, it can be one of the most difficult seasons of our life when we're really watching someone potentially struggle or decline. 
and also trying to live our own lives at the same time. And and a lot of what I do for with coaching family caregivers is making sure that they are still prioritizing their own and health and happiness while they're providing care for another human being. I mean, you've said, and I've heard other people say in the caregiving space, that it is crucial to create time for self-care while caregiving for others. And But this might seem pretty challenging and if not impossible to maybe some people who are listening right now are really in the thick of it. Why is it so important? Yeah, I get it. I mean, I've been there, right? As my as a caregiver in the sandwich generation, I had a full plate of things. I was raising kids and working full time. And my husband was also caregiving for his mom simultaneously. And, you know, we would joke that we would never going to be bored. We had plenty of to do. And we already had a full plate before caregiving came into our lives. I, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight for me that it kind of clicked that self-care became a priority for me. And really, honestly, it was watching these three individuals we were taking care of at the time that they had made lifestyle choices that had potentially put us in a caregiving situation. Now, I know that's not everyone's situation, but that was my light bulb moment of saying, oh my, if I don't do things differently, I'm going to potentially repeat the same circumstances for my family. And I didn't want that to happen. So self-care became very intentional for me. And that's what I want to encourage other people that it looks differently for everybody. I do believe that it is an antidote to caregiver burnout. And if you are trying to be a solo caregiver in particular, that is not sustainable. You will likely burn out. And I had to kind of define what self-care meant for me. And and self-care for me meant anything that was going to make me feel energized anything that was going to provide peace of mind for me so that I could sleep better at night and get move along with my day and things that were just plain fun that I enjoyed so that I didn't feel so resentful about the situation. First, I was super focused on physical self-care, such as eating right, exercise, even sleeping habits came later for me. There is so many different types of self-care. In fact, I, there are multiple categories. There's social self-care, financial, professional, intellectual, um, practical, and of course, physical and emotional self-care that we have to kind of try these things on. And it, it doesn't take hours a day that we're doing things in the nooks and crannies and in the pockets of our day just to make this situation sustainable. So what could that look like for somebody listening who is maybe a full-time unpaid caregiver for their loved one? What what could self-care look like for somebody who, you know, really says, I have, I just don't have time. When you hear that you should take care of yourself, that is such an annoying thing. You got you do have to kind of get to the point where the the pain of the situation is prompts you to really do things differently, I think. And hopefully this does resonate with somebody and that they are making small changes. But that for me, it looked like little things. Before there was a happy, healthy caregiver, there was an Instagram account that still exists today, but it was my personal account. And I was trying to form a habit of what it looked like to take care of myself. And so I did a hundred days of healthy. And some days it was really hard to find something healthy that I could do for myself. But looking back on what those things were, it was maybe making a different food choice. You know, we were still going out to eat and on the run as a family a lot, but making a different food choice, getting outside whenever possible. Sometimes I was taking my lunch outside at work or 
I find 10 minutes between meetings at work and I would take a walk. And the same thing if you're an at-home caregiver, when you have those little breaks to get outside and listen to music, music was very energizing. Even just one song called a happiness 911 song, like it's an emergency. I need some, some help. Journaling was, was big for me. And, and I would journal a couple times a week, movement, doing anything like you know, a couple sit-ups, a couple, you know, in the nooks and crannies of your day. Sometimes it's just cleaning off your desk. And it's like, okay, this is creating a lot of mess in my head right now. I just need to, you know, spend 15 minutes and set a timer and get this desk organized. So I think it can look like a lot of different things, but the media makes it look like it's all, you know, nights out on the town and weekends away and Manny and Petties. And these are all amazing things. But for somebody who is in the thick of caregiving, it is not just about those things, but how to make this sustainable. Maybe it's delegating um, their responsibilities or learning how to set a healthy boundary. I would call all of that self-care as well. I love how you have on the Happy Healthy Caregiver um, website that you actually have a Spotify, a caregiving Spotify playlist. Yeah. The caregiver anthems, because I listen to songs and I literally like, oh, this, I like, I think about caregivers probably too much if that's, if that's a thing. But when I hear songs, I think, oh, this would be a great caregiver anthem. And and then some people have given me songs that have resonated for them because I think we do, music can be such a mood lifter. How has caregiving impacted your mental health? How do, how do you think it, it impacts people's mental health, generally speaking? In all honesty, Marion, I had to be really conscious of that because I already had a diagnosis of generalized anxiety. And so I had to be even in, in hypothyroidism. So I had some things I had to also be conscious of that were already related to my mental health in a lot of ways. And caregiving definitely exasperated that, particularly after when my dad passed away in 2015. And then later that year, my mother-in-law passed away. Like it was rough. And mom came to live in the Atlanta area and I became her primary caregiver. Like my anxiety medication dosage definitely had to go up to compensate for that really thick, emotionally draining, exhausting time of my life. We mentioned some of these things earlier about nature. Like nature is still super important to me today for my mental health. Like I've got to get outside every day. It's just something, it's not like, hey, it might happen. It's like, no, this is happening. Where is this happening in my day? And then the journaling was big because like sitting down, I've always been a storyteller, always been a writer in some form or fashion. And that really helped me process the emotional and the mental, all the cornucopia of emotions that were happening with caregiving, like it needed to get out on paper. You know, when people talk about caregiving, there's such a negative connotation with it, but there's a lot of joy in the experience of caregiving as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? That was important to me. Like when I first started blogging at Happy Healthy Caregiver, like I found that I was also kind of going into this like gloom or doom pit. And that's not really part of my DNA. In fact, that's what I think sets me apart from other caregiving resources is yes, we might have times where we're venting and getting, you know, some difficult things out there. But it's a yes and. It's like, okay, let's recognize those emotions and what kind of action steps can we do to, you know, diminish this worry and put some kind of a plan in place to take action. So my voice had had changed and, and that was a conscious, again, intentional thing. 
there were a lot of joys in caregiving for me. I mean, we had some really funny moments. Like, you know, we would say, you can't make this stuff up sometimes. Had some funny texts with my siblings about like, you know, you're a caregiver when dot, dot, dot. And like just things you never thought were going to be true. And humor was a big part of that. And I think it definitely, I would, I'm from a tight knit family and I know how lucky I am to be able to say that we're not perfect. We all have different opinions and different priorities and values, but we do work hard on that. And I'm grateful also that like, I felt like I had six bonus years with my mom after my dad passed away. And we had some amazing coffee chats and conversations. She knew about my business. She even was a guest on my podcast. Like she was very supportive of what I was doing, even though sometimes I wasn't always talking about it in a completely favorable light. So just some really cool memories. And I think it's like, because my dad had passed away, we were hyper-focused on extracting these stories from my mom and just enjoying her company while we had her. You talk about family members and you're lucky. You said you have a very tight-knit family, but that's not the case um, for a lot of people. I'm an only child. So when it comes to caregiving for my own family members, I don't really have a sibling to go to, but I know that I've certainly spoken to a lot of people that have other family members and it doesn't always go so well. How can we troubleshoot or manage maybe those difficult relationships with other family members when trying to caregive? I think the key with this, and you know, like I said, I I am a lucky person in my family, but I do have the family members, the siblings who were not a lot of help during caregiving. And it frustrated me initially. And then I said, you know, this person has kind of been consistent the way that he's behaved with, with our family my entire life. So why would I expect caregiving to to be anything different? And I think it was really like, okay, his loss in some ways, yeah, yes, this is really frustrating, but who is going to help? And looking around and broadening your care circle, like I think a lot of times we're laser focused on the family members. And in your case, you have no siblings, so you're not going to be, and you're going to be forced to come to this realization sooner than people who do have siblings. But family is one source of help. There are a lot of sources of help. There are your faith communities. There are professionals and volunteers in your community. There are cousins and aunts and uncles and neighbors of you and neighbors of your loved one. And there are a lot of resources. And I would say even technology is part of the care team at this point in your care circle, because they know that we have a shortage of family caregivers taking care of the people who are going to need care. And it's those types of things that are going to help fill the gap. Um, I'm not talking necessarily robots, but you know, Things about making groceries, deliveries, you know, easier, companionship, medication reminders, life alerts, like all of those things. But, you know, how you can mitigate the risk of having a really rough family dynamic situation is by having open and honest conversation. And the more that you can manage expectations up front and get them out in the open sooner rather than later that's going to help everybody just to understand what your position is right now and what you're willing to take on, where you feel like your strengths and your weaknesses are. And having those conversations with your family members can really set uh, set the whole team up for success. I find that it's a lot of times it's those unsaid things. And it's like, well, what would happen if you said that? 
how would that change things? Uh, what if they actually helped you? You know, maybe it's just like, and I've been there. Like I thought, oh gosh, you know, people should just know. People should just see that I need need help. But nobody is a mind reader, and everybody is living their life, you know, at a fast pace normally. Um, and so you have to vocalize it, and you have to be vulnerable. So two V's: vocalize and be vulnerable about what it is that you need and what it is that you want so that you can strengthen the team and it can be a better fit for everybody. You know, you work with employees. What do you hear about people who are juggling, trying to work and caregive at the same time? Yes, I've worked with employees and I've been that employee, you know, that worked full time while juggling care and kids and all of that. It's exhausting. You know, we feel like we're on a treadmill or a hamster wheel And I know for me, like sometimes I would feel like the speed might slow down a little bit, but I never got completely off of it. There's always something that needs your attention. And, you know, oftentimes going kind of going back to the self-care thing, like we hear about the oxygen mask, put the mask on ourselves before we help others. That analogy did not work great for me because I felt like it was a one and done type of crisis situation. And that's not really what a caregiving life is. Like it is something that for the average caregiver lasts four and a half years. So figuring out, for me, it was more like a nest of hungry birds. And it was trusting myself that I could discern who needed the attention at the time. You know, was it my job? Was it my kids? Was it my care recipient? My relationships with my girlfriends and my husband, like all of that, like there's always somebody that's going to need something. And yet at the same time, learning how to go and get our own nourishment so that we can keep that whole system sustainable. It's a lot, you know, there's a lot of juggling. And I think they make amazing employees, by the way, caregivers, because they are the masters in figuring out how to manage competing multiple priorities, how to advocate, how to delegate, how to problem solve, how to research, like what is it that a caregiver can't do? that doesn't apply for a job of some sort. How do you think that employers should or could be better supporting their employees who are also caregivers? It's a great question. And this is something that I'm really hyper-focused on right now, Marianne, because, you know, we have the great resignation from the pandemic and we know that the care tsunami is going to continue to happen where there's going to be more people who need care. And yet we have, we are losing employees. Like employees feel like they have no choice, but to either quit or reduce their hours or to change things in some way. So it's a win-win, right? For employers to care about their employees because they can keep their most valuable asset, their, their labor force and retain it and retain quality people. So some of the things that I do to help employers is I'm a speaker. So oftentimes I am hired by an employee resource group for caregivers. Sometimes it's a women's employee resource group. Sometimes I've spoken for companies and then they've started an employee resource group for caregivers in order to help them because then they can create this community within their workforce. And that's very convenient for people. And that's also an amazing resource because a lot of times they're talking to people in their same geography so that they can tap into the local resources in their area. And caregivers are craving community and working caregivers don't necessarily have that time to find that community outside of their workplace. 
So by bringing the education and the valuable resource in, sometimes it's just dusting off what they already are offering as far as the benefits that maybe they'd never thought about how those could apply to a family caregiver, but making them aware of what is available to their staff. And I think also being, again, voice and vulnerability, like their leadership team, the more that they can talk about how care has impacted their lives so that it normalizes the conversation. And in that culture, people are going to feel safer to kind of come out because there is a little bit of a, still a stigma for family caregivers that if I share too much, it's going to hurt my career in some way. Uh, And I think women feel that even potentially more than men because they're already doing a lot to try to, you know, stay above And it just adds to that. Oh, it's probably going to be, you know, a detriment to their their work. And that's not the case. Two things can be true at the same time. They can be amazing employees and they can be great caregivers at home, too. You've spoken about preparing for a caregiving crisis at work. How can somebody do that? Yes, they're going to happen, right? Like I think caregivers are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I know for me, when mom used to call me, sometimes I had to first discern if it really was a crisis. Like in her world, a crisis was, oh my gosh, my iPad, I can't find an app on my iPad or it stopped working or my Wi-Fi is not working or I can't turn my TV on or, you know, all of that. And I would just have to kind of do this negotiation of like, okay, this is, you know, we'll we'll get it fixed, but it's managing expectations and what that would look like as far as when I could get there. Um, Sometimes it was a real crisis for her. You know, she was out of her incontinence supplies and, you know, that would be more of a crisis. And then it was, you know, Instacart to the rescue or something. But I think also as working family caregivers, we got to proactively prepare for that. And so it's, and I think the pandemic has helped with this, with that too, is, you know, getting laptops, knowing how to get into our VPN, putting all of our documents out in the cloud, never leaving home without chargers and and things like that, that you're ready to kind of work wherever you need to work and keeping your team informed about like the potential that the situation could happen and establishing backups. You know, we do this in other parts of our life as far as like, you know, if something were to happen, what to do. Uh, we've got to kind of do this when it comes to to work and and care as well. And share, but not overshare, I think is important. You know, we don't want to always be talking about caregiving at work. We want to build trust there. But I think it is we can share just enough. You cite a statistic according to the ARP and the National Alliance for Caregiving report. Uh, it's called Caregiving in the U.S. 2020. Almost 40% of the 53 million family caregivers in the U.S. Um, are men. Yet male family caregivers often feel more isolated than their female counterparts. Why is that? Well, I'm not a man or I don't identify as a man. So I'm not complete, you know, I think it would be good to to chat with a few of them. But from what I've understand from my clients, and I will say, honestly, most of my clients are female and women. There's a couple of things, you know, maybe in the history of the human race and women have been more the proven nurturers in some ways. And so we're still kind of fighting against some of those stereotypes. And I think men have some stereotypes too, that, you know, they're not allowed to kind of feel the emotions as much and talk about these things and that they just have to kind of 
roll up their sleeves and figure it out. And I think it it's good for all of us to kind of get all of these issues out on the table and talk about it. There are some male caregivers that I've interviewed on the podcast. In fact, I have a male community on my page because if a man comes to a happy, healthy caregiver, I want them to kind of quickly navigate and see people like themselves in a caregiving role. You know, I've interviewed like Carlos Olivas was a great one who's caring for his dad with dementia. I think Richard Louie, the CNBC anchor who scaled back his career and took a weekend anchor job so that he could still provide the care that he wanted to for his dad and now his mom. Like he's been very vocal about being what it's like for male caregivers. And I think the more people that are use their voice, tell their story and and be vulnerable about what's going on in their life, we are going to normalize these conversations. And I think we'll see that more men then will be identifying and speaking up as family caregivers. What what do you wish more people knew about family caregiving? Are there common misconceptions about it that you hear? For me, when mom was in an assisted living community, I think there's a misconception like, oh, what's the big deal? She doesn't live at your house. Like, but there's the role is different or like a remote caregiver, a long distance caregiver. The role is different, but the the mental strain, the emotional strains, the physical task list, they still are there. They're just different. And I think that can kind of be a myth about caregiving. I also think, you know, one of the things I would love to see change in our space, in our healthcare space, is our healthcare system is very fragmented. And I know for me, you know, when I was taking mom in and being her advocate, asking the questions, wheeling her in, sometimes I wheeled her in and had her walker. And I was felt like this pack mule of bringing in all these things. And I know that you know, what I wish would change is that these healthcare workers would see the family caregiver and not just count on us as invisible labor, but really invite us into the being a part of the, the care team and making sure that we're tapped into the support because we are critical, critical to filling this gap in our healthcare system. And when the family caregiver breaks down, from burnout or something that has a ripple effect on everything. Your employer, your family, your care recipient, our healthcare system, like all of it. Is it possible to be successful at caregiving? What what does that look like? It's I don't know. That's hard. I mean it is. Yes, I think it's possible to be successful. For me, it looked like there's a common feeling among caregivers where you feel like you're never doing enough. And, you know, am I enough? Is this enough? Because again, going back to that nest analogy with the birds, there, someone's always streaming for more. Like there's just not enough of you as one human to kind of go around to sustain everybody. So you really do have to kind of get into your pragmatic caregiver space of saying, you know, I have done the best that I can today and really look in the mirror and say this, you know, I crushed it today. You know, yes, I wore my my super caregiver cape, and it might be a little tattered and a little bit worn, but tomorrow you're going to shake it out and put it back on again. I think that's what success looks like. In your work, what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? Well, there's always the little notes and messages from people, right? Like there's something really resonated with them or they tried something or they, you know, reframe something. Like I just got a message from a 
someone I had coached today and, you know, good news and had shared about some of the things that we had talked about and what had been put in place and, and how it had made a positive change in her family with their dynamics. And I think that's the kind of stuff that keeps keeps you going. And also what keeps me going is like you had said it, there's 53 million family caregivers in the U.S. And for some crazy reason, like a lot of them still don't even know that they're care- uh, called this and they're not connected to the resources. And until that happens, I think we have, you know, big work to do and not just me, but I'm really, you know, mindset of abundance. Like we have to all kind of work together in this care economy space to attack this problem. And, you know, we can't wait for government to kind of figure it out. We, it's a lot of the private sector and the human beings that are doing the things that they can to kind of pay it forward and support, support this growing caregiving care force. Um, so there's so much work to do. Certified caregiving consultant Elizabeth Miller has been my guest today on the Life Speak podcast. Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you again for having me, Marianne. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.